If you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to John's Gospel in chapter 1. And this morning in our sermon we'll be looking at what makes Christ so unique among all of the religious figures of the world, what you will find in Christ that you can find nowhere else. With the Word of God open before us, let's pray together. O Lord, our God and our Father, we come before you this morning in the name of your Son. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn Son from the dead. And He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. His head, His hair are white like wool, His eyes like a flame of fire, His feet like burnished bronze, His voice like a sound of many waters. He holds the seven angels of the seven churches in His hand, and His voice is like the, is like the sound of many waters, and His face like the sun shining in its strength. And we ask You this morning, our Father, that through the Lord Jesus Christ and by Your Spirit, You would come and make this book live in our hearts. It's alive, O God. By nature, we are dead to it. And so we come and pray for the help of Your Spirit, that You will restore the backslider. You'll save the lost this morning, and You'll build up Your people gathered here in their most holy faith. Give us all eyes to see Jesus this morning, we pray. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Literally in the Greek it says, The only begotten God who is in the Father's bosom, He has made Him known. He has exegeted Him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but this is the Word of God, and it endures forever. Well, we live in an age that is tremendously confused when it comes to the subject of truth. Three lies grip our age and define the worldview of Western civilization such as we find it today. The first is relativism, which is the idea, boys and girls, that nothing is really true, right? You can have your truth and I can have my truth, but there's no absolute truth. What Francis Schaeffer called true truth, that which is true at all times and in all places and for all people, that doesn't exist in our world's mind. Relativism, nothing is really true. The next false idea that grips our world today is pluralism, which is basically a way of saying everyone is really right. When it comes to worldviews, they're all the same, right? All religions are the same, we're told. They only differ on the matter of 
truth, sin, salvation, heaven, and hell. But apart from that, they're, 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 they're all, all the same. And one's no better than the other. Everyone's really right. The agnostic, the atheist, the Christian, the Muslim, the Hindu are all just making their way up the mountain. And the third lie is multiculturalism, which is nobody's really wrong. That all cultures are good, beautiful, and true in their own way, from queer culture uh, in San Francisco all the way to the cannibal culture in Ambubunguland with the penchant for wearing the trunken heads of their enemies around their necks. So whatever floats your boat, right? Um, there's nothing that's really true. Everyone is really right and nobody is really wrong. And so you can understand then why our age simply does not know what to do with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the great Colossus who stands with his feet on earth and his heaven in the heavens, his head in the heavens. And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way. If you don't follow me, well, you're quite lost, Jesus says. And I am the truth. If you don't listen to me, Jesus says, well, you're quite wrong. And I am the life, the life. If you don't come to me, Jesus says, well, you're quite dead in time and in eternity. And when it comes to die in your body, the last thing, boys and girls, you want to be is to find yourself also dead in your soul. Jesus Christ is quite unique. And in our text this morning, John has been showing us his uniqueness in his person. He's the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then last week we saw he's also the Son of Mary, that without ceasing to be what he'd always been, he became something he had never been before. He became flesh, the fullness of God and the fullness of humanity. That's his person that's unique. But this morning in our sermon, we see that he's also unique in his work. That when you come to Christ, you find three particular benefits that you will not find anywhere else in heaven or on earth. You'll find, first of all, a place to meet the presence of God. Secondly, you'll find a promise of receiving the grace of God. And thirdly, you'll find a person who shows the face of God. Let's work through those together this morning. First of all, we find a place to meet the presence of God. See that there in verse 14. Literally, the Greek says, and the Word became flesh and pitched His tent, tabernacled amongst us. When it comes to meeting a person, it's important to know where to find them, right? When you want to meet God, where do you go? Now, for the Jews of John's day, this was a significant problem because they always went to the temple. But in AD 70, which was probably 20 years before John writes his gospel, the Romans, Titus, came in and leveled the temple to the ground, and so the Jews no longer had a temple to meet God. And their plan was to turn away, as it were, from Mount 
Zion and to go to Mount Sinai and to get back to the law. Just try to obey the law. And John is saying this morning, that is a colossal mistake. To think about it like this, if you're new to the Christian faith, when you're reading the Old Testament, there are two great mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And there's much that's similar about both mountains. It's the same God coming down on Sinai and on Zion. And it's the same people with the same problems gathering to meet this God at the foot of Sinai and at the top of Zion. But the great difference between Sinai and Zion is the tabernacling presence of God in the temple. There's no temple on Sinai. On Sinai, you simply have the naked presence of God coming down in the thunder and loud, crashing condemnation of the law. It's a terrifying place. Not even a beast or a man could touch the mountain on pain of death. The alarm sounding from Mount Sinai was that no one can see my face and live at Sinai. But on the temple, what a difference. In the temple on Mount Zion, God came down, and the reason that He could come down and meet with people, and people didn't stand at the foot of Zion. They lived in Zion, the city on a hill, and boys and girls played there, was because the temple was there, and in the temple there was an altar where sin could be atoned, and therefore God could be approached. And John is saying, when it comes to the New Testament now, don't go back to Sinai. Don't go back to the law, Jews. You need to come to the new temple who is Jesus. We, the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, and we beheld His glory. The glory that filled the temple, the tabernacle in Moses' day and in Solomon's day is the glory that we saw in Jesus Christ. The temple is no longer a building. It's a person. And if you want to meet God, you've got to come to Him or you'll never meet him at all. So this week, I spent five hours at the DMV. (laughs) I'm persuaded the DMV was designed by somebody criminally insane. (laughs) It could make a man lose his will to drive, if not actually his will to live. The process is quite convoluted, right? You you, you go to the DMV, if you're new to the state, you go to the DMV, and you stand in line for a very long time. And then eventually you go to the nice gentleman or lady behind the kiosk and you prove, which is no mean feat, that you actually live in this state. And they then give you a new driver's license or a real ID. I've got a real ID now. And then you leave the DMV and you drive a very long way across the great city of Columbia to the courthouse where you have to go and meet representatives of the treasurer. And you then present before her the vehicles that you want to register. She, she decides how much taxes they demand, which is an awful lot. And then you, you, you go in another line and you queue there and then you give over your money. And then you drive all the way back to the DMV again, right? You know, all this government of the people, by the people, for the people malarkey is wonderful. <laughs> but it only goes so far, right? I don't get to set the… T- I mean, I could say in the DMV, I don't want to drive to the courthouse. Let the treasurer come to me. I'd be waiting a very long time if I didn't actually get arrested. 
Because when you deal with the government, they set the terms of the meeting, not you. And you stand in line as long as you need to stand in line to do the thing that you're going to do, right? And should it surprise you that when it comes to meeting God, the same principles hold true? If you're a visitor here, you might say, I like to meet with God on the golf course or hiking in the great hills of North Carolina or um, in the shopping malls or with my grandchildren. That's where I meet God. And you can meet God there, but you won't meet God there if you don't come as a sinner to meet Him in Jesus Christ where He promises to be found. Have you done that? Have you come to the appointed place at the appointed time to Jesus and say, Lord, bring me to the Father? Because he gives you, boys and girls, a place to meet the presence of God. Secondly, in Jesus we find a promise to receive the grace of God. He's full of grace and truth, he is. Now, what do we mean by grace? Let's define our terms first of all. Grace in the Old Testament and in the New describes the favor of God, his smile. And it's often described as the undeserved favor of God. We don't deserve God's smile, but He smiles on us anyway. But actually, it's much better than that, because you and I are much worse than that. It's not just that we deserve nothing from God, boys and girls. We actually deserve His wrath and curse. The grace of God isn't just God's love for the undeserving. Grace is actually God's love for the hell-deserving, such as I am. Turn back quickly in your Bibles. Keep your finger in John 1. But turn back to Genesis 6. Now in Genesis 6, you remember the story. It's just before the flood, right? And the sons of God, which is the Old Testament way of describing believers back then, then men began to be called by the name of God, is one way of translating the end of Genesis 4. So these are God's sons. The sons of God saw that the daughters of mere men, these are unbelieving girls, were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. It's all about them. She looks good to me. I'll have her. But they're thinking with their flesh, not with their souls, because these are the sons of God marrying the daughters of mere men. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, which is the Hebrew word, literally means the fallen ones were in the world in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, what, what he's saying is that these are the products of that union. They were the fallen ones, literally. And they were physically very successful. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That's their, spirit, that's their physical heritage, but, their, but their, phys, their spiritual heritage is described in the next verse. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's God's assessment of the best you can be without a Savior, and the best I can be without a Savior. This is what God thinks when He looks at you and me. Every intent, every intent of the thoughts of your heart is only evil continually. Every, only, continually. That's a devastating indictment. 
And it's true of all mankind. And God then threatens great judgment. He's going to wipe them off the face of the earth. But look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Literally, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I love Alec Mateer's summary of that. He says, the Hebrew rightfully says, Noah found grace. But the theology is that grace found Noah. And don't let verse 9 confuse you. Verse 9 says, these are the generations. That word, these are the generations, is a way in Genesis that the writer Moses uses to set apart an entirely new section. So he's not explaining why Noah found grace in verse 8. He's actually explaining what happened to Noah after he found grace. He became a righteous man and walked with God. But Noah was under the same condemnation, and yet God showed him grace. Now, back to, to John 1 a second here now. He's the only begotten of the Father, verse 14, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John's saying there, you remember, that Christ in human terms came after me. He's my younger cousin, and so therefore I am senior to him. But in reality, I rank beneath him because my beginning has its root in my mother's womb. He never had a beginning. His roots go all the way back to the eternity of God. He was before me. As in before Abraham was, I am. And therefore, John says, verse 16, for from his fullness, all of the fullness of God, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. When you come to Jesus, you come to an inexhaustible fountain of grace and truth. In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and you're going to take a little thimble full of wine, barely a mouthful. But it points to a reality that's bigger than all the world. Little child can hold that thimble in their hand and drain it to the bottom. But it points to a reality that has no bottom and no shore. The heart of God the Son is bigger than all the world, bigger than the universe, the cosmos. From his fullness we have all received. Remember we said last night, Sunday evening, if you count the stars in our just in our galaxy, one galaxy, there's a hundred million galaxies, hundred billion galaxies, but just one galaxy, the Milky Way, and you count them at three a second, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and you never stop day or night to go to the restroom, have a sandwich, never stop. It'll take you, because there's a hundred billion stars in our galaxy, it'll take you 3,170 years to count the stars in just one galaxy at three seconds. And Jesus made those with words. And the Bible says He is full of grace and truth. You go into Him, 
and you go into him, and you go into him, and you keep going in and in and into him forever and a day, and all you'll find, Christian, is grace, God's love for the hell-deserving, and truth, his amen-like character, his faithfulness, all of the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. Grace upon grace, grace lavished upon grace, more and more grace, or grace, the grace of the New Testament fulfilling and replacing the grace of the Old Testament. There's two ways you can read that verse. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What John is saying here is, Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no grace in the New Testament, and there is no grace in the Old Testament. If anyone ever at any time received grace, it always came through Jesus from His fullness. We have all received saints through time and eternity. All the grace comes through Jesus. And if you turn away from Jesus and you try to go to Moses and the law, what you'll find is no grace and only law. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that's always a balance, right? Because Christians, we, the Christian life is lived, it's a narrow little road that we live as we make our way from guilt through grace to glory. And on either side of the road, there are two ditches. On the one side of the road, the right-hand side of the road, there's a ditch of law, legalism. On the left-hand side of the road, there's the ditch of license. People who fall into the… We're like, and we tend to be like one of those wonky um, Kruger carts in the grocery store with a wheel that's kind of… and keeps on pulling you to the wrong side, right? And we all, by nature, tend to fall into one or both of these ditches, and nothing is more common to swerve from the one ditch to the other. Those who fall into the legalistic ditch, they think they must keep the law to enjoy grace. So they're always working like a hamster on the wheel, trying to keep the law, to, to, to do enough to get grace. And the people on the other side of the, of, the, of, the, of the road who fall into the licentiousness, the licensed people, they think, well, to enjoy grace, you've got to forget about the law. Just kick back and just forget about the law. Jesus has died, and so you regard grace like the, the, the trust fund kid's daddy's credit card. You just kind of just lean on Jesus and just live it up. But Dr. Ferguson, and I'm indebted to him for this this. this connection. He says, the secret of understanding law and grace is to unite both these things in the person of Jesus. Because outside of Jesus, the law is a cold, harsh, merciless, inflexible rule. Do this and live, it says. Break this and die. That's the law outside of Jesus. But see the law in Jesus, and what a difference it makes. With his right hand, Jesus uses the law to bring us in like a sheepdog, to bring us in to the cross, 
See, you've broken all of God's commandments in thought, word, and deed every single day. You need a Savior, and I'm just the Savior you need. And he brings you in. And then he sends you from the law, not crushing you, but inspiring you like Nick Saban. I listened to him this week, and he was inspiring young people. who were very talented, these young Alabama football players. And he was inspiring them. And he said to them, you know, you've got five choices. You can be poor, as in way below average. You can be a little below average. You can be good. You can be above average. Or you can be excellent. And talent will only make you good at football, he said to the young football players. If you want to be exceptional, you've got to make an exceptional choice. And this didn't crush them. These are young men who were inspired by Nick Saban. And likewise, Jesus, when he comes with a grace that's rich and full and free, and he comes with a law, he inspires us to follow his example. And maybe you're the Christian here, and you're saying, no, no, I just, I just forget about the law. I just… I just Jesus took care of all that, so I don't have to care about all that. And Jesus says to you, do you know my grace? Do you say, shall we sin that grace might abound? How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Don't you realize that we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, and we've been baptized into His death, and that death affects us at the deepest possible level, that the Son of God died in my place for my sins. And when that gets into your head, into your heart, it changes the way you think about everything. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so likewise, brothers and sisters, Paul says to you, reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. And do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for you're not under law but under grace. And that, that word should encourage you to lay aside every weight and to run with endurance. And yet when we fail, and we fail every day, Jesus stands there and says, come back to me. When you come to me, you're not going to find a law to condemn you. You're going to find a grace to receive you, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to dust you off, wipe you down, and set you back on your feet again to go out and try harder and do better tomorrow. But you're trying harder and doing better won't make me love you any more and if you fall down, I won't love you any less. And even when you do fall, you'll not be hurled headlong because I am the one who holds your hand. I'm full of grace and truth. You can trust a Savior like that. So he gives us, John says, a place to meet the presence of God. He gives us a promise to receive the grace of God. And lastly and briefly, he gives us a person to show the face of God. No one has ever seen God at any time. 
the only God, the only begotten God who dwells in the bosom of the Father. He knows the Father's heart is the idea. He has made him known. He's explained him. What is God like? You know how most people answer that question, boys and girls? They think of themselves. Then they try and think bigger and better. But Karl Barth, who's not a very good theologian, he said once, though, and this is good, you can't get to God by shouting, man, in a loud voice. Because God is entirely different from us. Like if you begin down here on earth with microbes and mollusks and mice and monkeys and marsupials and then men, you keep on going down the chain of being and eventually you get up to angels, cherubim and seraphim and the archangels, right? And you keep on going. You don't eventually get to God. You never get to God. Once you get to the archangels, you meet a full stop. And then there's a gift, a, 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 a gulf that goes on forever and ever and ever, an infinite gulf separating the creature from the Creator. And we can't imagine our way across that. You know, imagination can be a dangerous thing. Last Sunday evening, I was describing Cocky, the king of the cockroaches, and half the congregation laughed. And I thought, that wasn't that funny. I knew not of what I spoke. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm the kind of, I'm a newbie here. My first service in First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, there was a missionary speaker giving a report, and he was from Auburn. As he walked to the pulpit, one of the choir yelled out, Roll Tide! And I thought, oh, Auburn, Roll Tide. That must be what you tell people from Auburn. <laughs> it gets worse. For the next 14 years, everybody I met from Auburn, I went, Rule tied. <laughs> they didn't laugh. They looked surprised. I thought, they're just surprised that I knew that because I'm not from around these parts. I imagined I was being kind. I was actually being quite rude. Imagination can get you in trouble. You can't imagine your way to God. You can't think your way up to Him. He must stoop to come down to you. Boys and girls, when you speak to Pastor, Brian, Pastor Bolt, he's so tall, right? But when he talks, he doesn't sit over you and boom, down at you. He gets down on his hunkers and looks you in the eye and puts his arms around you and talks to you. That's what big men do. And in Jesus, the big, great God of heaven has got down in his hunkers and he's come to a place where you and you and you and you can come to him and see his face. Moses couldn't see the face of God. No one shall see the face of God and live, the Old Testament says. But in Jesus, we see the face of God, and it's the face of a Father. No one has seen God any time, but the only begotten God who dwells in the bosom of the Father, He has come down to explain Him. What is God like? Oh, he's just like Jesus. There is no un 
Christ-likeness in God at all. Isn't he lovely? He's full of grace and truth. He'll never reject you if you come to him. He excludes none but those who exclude themselves by not coming. If you come to him this morning, whoever you are, whatever you have done, he will receive you. He's full of grace, and he's full of truth. He'll never deceive you. He'll never lie to you. You might not like what he has to say, but when you listen to him, you'll not be confused. He'll tell you the truth about God. He'll tell you the truth about you and the truth about me and the truth about everything because He is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through the Son. Because when it comes to meeting God and receiving His grace and seeing His face, we don't get the right to define the terms of that meeting. God is the one who defines the terms, and it's only in Jesus, which is what makes Jesus quite indispensable. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word and its beautiful picture of Your Son. We pray now, O Lord, as we continue our worship and come to the table, that You will come down and meet with us in these little tiny pictures of huge, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable blessings that are all ours in Christ Jesus. Amen.